0: Welcome to or welcome back to the ABC's of Disability Planning Podcast. My name is Eric Jorgensen. I am the host of ABC's Disability Planning, and I'm also the founder of Special Needs Navigator. I started Special Needs Navigator to help families, individuals, and professionals navigate the maze of benefits, resources, and services available to those with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The podcast came... From that desire into a bigger desire to make sure individuals, families, and professionals know about resources they may never have heard of. Now these resources and mindsets aren't, des- aren't just for those with intellectual developmental disabilities. Really the ABC of Disability Planning is for any type of disability planning. And as I mentioned, this is about mindset as much as it is about tools and resources you can use. And today I have with me Tracy Gardner. She's a published author. She also works for the CIL, Community of Inclusive Living. The biggest thing about her is her mindset and her her ability to persevere through trials and tribulations and, and other things that, that may, may have stopped someone else. She does happen to be a, user, a wheelchair user. She has mis- muscular dystrophy. This is not meant to be inspiration porn. She wrote a, re- a book that I really want to get the word out about. She's written 15 books. She's a published author, a very accomplished author. This book is a nonfiction book. Most of her books are more romance suspense, but this book, the one that we wanted, that I want you to be aware of, is the Dis- is disability: an anecdotal field guide for the rest of us. It's available in ebook and paperback, and I'm going to have links to it in the show notes. I'm also going to have a link to Tracy Gartner's website because she not only is writing, she's also teaching other people how to write and offering courses for that. I really want you to take away the that a disability should never lead you to believe that somebody is incapable of doing something. It's more about what, what resources do they need, what accommodations might they need, and how do you help them Find their passion, find their drive, and ultimately find their success. I'd love to hear feedback on this. If you enjoy hearing from authors, I, you know, other individuals who have disabilities and small businesses, I'd love to hear from you. I, I do believe there are specific challenges to those that have disabilities, especially if you're receiving Medicaid supports, and I'd love to hear about how you're getting around that. Or if you've used the pass, Social Security Pass or Ticket to Work, I'd love to hear your stories on that. That's enough of me talking. Let's dive into the conversation with Tracy and I. Welcome, everyone. With me is Tracy Garner, the world-renowned author. She also happens to work for a community of independent living, a CIL. And she uses a wheelchair. But I have her here today because of her expertise as an author, as a a self-published author and a business owner. And I wanted to highlight for families and parents what is possible and, and really expound on the idea of disability. You know, I don't want, and I've said this over and over again, I don't want people letting their disability define who the person is. And I really thought Tracy was a, a great person to, to talk about this. I, you know, share, She shared a little bit of her background with me and, and we'll see what she's willing to share with you guys, but she's overcome some stuff. I mean, you know, she really has. So Tracy, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank I, I'm you. really looking forward to diving into this.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I am excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity.
0: You're welcome. So, Steve Johnson with the Navigating Life as We Know It podcast introduced us because you just, re- you're, you're releasing a brand new book on Kindle, right? right. So let's start with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. I'm releasing a new book called Disability An Anecdotal Field Guide for the Rest of Us. It is a book about uh, my experiences in nine key areas to start. It's also volume one. So that's important to note because I hope to do more volumes and invite other people with disabilities to come and join me and share their stories but what i really wanted to do with this book was present just some advice a little salt and sage for people to you know flavor their life and to help them on this journey, navigating life with a chronic condition, illness, or disability, obviously. And so I was diagnosed at age two with muscular dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy or MD is a disease that attacks the muscles. So at two years old, I was trying to walk and I fell down a lot. And um, off to the doctor, we went like, why is she falling down all the time? And did a biopsy and found out that I have muscular dystrophy. So there's over 45 types of MD. Most people don't know that ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease is also a form of MD. And so that's the most popular one. But I have SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. I've written 15 books. This is book number 15. My heart is in the romance suspense genre. But I just have been evolving as a writer as I've gotten older. And I really want to explore everything, even a children's book, even a film. And so I just love writing. And It saved me and helped me get through so many things, like college and my depression. But yeah, the book is out now. It's in ebook and paperback, mm. and I hope to have a hardcover just in another couple of weeks.
0: I'm gonna to have to get the paperback because when we talked last, it was only an ebook, and I really struggle with with ebooks. But I'll definitely get a paperback. Yeah. So, what's it like? And I'm gonna preface all of this because a lot of what I ask, I'm asking out of true ignorance, not out of malice. But what's it like trying to navigate becoming an author? I mean, like I've never written a book. You've written 15. I I imagine this you know, disability and anecdotal field guide was probably easier than your very first one, right? In some ways.
1: Definitely. It's It was so much easier. I can't even believe, you know, sometimes I read my own books and I'm like, who wrote this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just amazed. I'm like you wrote all these words and I'm just amazed. And so part of it is a little bit of, you know, divination, divine, uh, helping me along the way. But it's also that this book was easier because I'm really just having a conversation these are things that I would want my someone like me to tell my parents, tell caregivers, doctors, and others that are around me supporting me. I want them to be real and I want them to be candid about, you know, the experiences that people with disabilities are going to encounter and how to handle things. Because, you know, I spent some time on a hamster wheel, you know, with a case manager one instance that I talk about in the advocacy chapter and the transportation chapter of getting denied, you know, like seven times by this older case manager who works for vocational rehabilitation and didn't want to get me the tools that I needed to be able to drive and to get my vehicle uh, modified so I could drive it. And just that time wasted time in my life and also muscles atrophying over the course of the year, like, would I be able, by the time I get through with him, would I be able to drive at all? And so when I got a new case manager, I got approved right away. So that told me that one, they were probably tired of me, you know, applying all the time, but just a change in the case manager, he was new to the job. He was wonderful. I love him to this day, but he really helped me get my freedom. And I also knew that maybe I could ask for a case manager earlier, a a second or different case manager earlier. And I want to give that kind of advice to people who are so afraid they keep running against roadblocks, but you know, we're afraid to ask for new doctors and get rid of the doctors who are not doing what we'd like, who are not optimistic about our treatment regimen and just kind of stuck. And so this is to give people a license to you know, say, you know what, you're you're not really helping me. You seem more like an impediment than you know, a supporter and an encourager. So I want to move on and be free to say that. The worst they could say is no, we don't have anybody else. But for the most part, that is your right to ask for someone. And just I just felt horrible about wasting so much time. And I cried a lot, you know, behind this person that was just just refused to help me. And I would see other friends get granted things, you know, so easily. And, um, and also I was in my twenties. So I really didn't have a lot of experience with what outright prejudice is and what that looked like. And so maybe I can help someone recognize the signs sooner.
0: Wow. There, there's a lot that you've said in there. I want to draw an underline on the word freedom. And I also want to highlight the, what you didn't, sp- specifically spell out but the the ability to advocate on your own behalf you know i'm a i'm a white male and i have trouble with doctors where Mm -hmm. you know a doctor will tell me well most recently it's, it's a medication that i felt very strongly on that i should go back on because of my arthritis and stuff and he was against it you know he well reasoned but I was afraid to push back. Not, you yeah. know, maybe not afraid, maybe hesitant, whatever the language you use to make me mm-hmm. sound more macho. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm being real. Right. Yeah. But it took me going to another going to my rheumatologist and her saying, you know, no, we really need you on this medication. Mm-hmm. And I felt kind of like, well, I've been asking for it, but I haven't been pushing for it. Right. I mean, there's a difference there. Right. There's this almost passive voice of yes, please let me do this. And then there's the more advocating for yourself of I, you need to do this for me mm-hmm. or finding another doctor. And I'm, you know, again, I'm a white male. So you would think, you know, I don't have the same struggles. Well I, I know I don't have the same struggles of bias or anything, but you would think I'd be more willing to just speak for myself. Mm-hmm. And I say all that to because when I think about my son who has disabilities, you know, capacity of understanding and and capacity to make himself understood some challenges there right or like you were saying you know you're a woman of color or i don't know how you identify if you're That's african-american fine. or black or mm-hmm. and, um again nothing out of malice yes it's all the same um, <laughs> but you know you're i i have read enough studies that where i've said you know people of color often Diagnosed later in life with disabilities, a lot of times wow. things like heart attacks and stuff are are ignored or mm-hmm. put off. You know, so how does how do families build that advocacy muscle?
1: Yeah, it's a tough question, but it's it's really the constant. You know, when I saw my parents advocating for me, when my dad would go down to the school, you know, a big burly black man and mostly white women teachers at that time, he didn't, you know, have any degrees. He didn't know about, you know, early childhood development or education, but he actually got me out of, and my mom too, got me out of, you know, uh, special education. I was in special education. So I was in fourth grade. And then my dad's like, "Wow, you know, this is something's happening You're Not being challenged." And I got moved to mainstream. So as an adult, I'm able to think about that. But what I would recommend parents do is one, take your child with you. You know, so many times we're going down to public comment and testimony, and we're doing it alone. I say take everybody, get you a posse. You know, take your sister, your 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 mother, the child's grandmother and grandfather. Take everyone because we are so much better in numbers. But the other thing is that the siblings and the aunties and uncles don't know how to help you. And then when you become ill, they don't know what to do to help this child. So if you take them with you all the time to the events, even if your child needs, you know, a fidgeting device, needs an iPad and some and some headphones in order to self-contain and to do their own thing, at least they are there, they are present. And that also is a real, you know, a greater statement to the powers and the legislative people that be, because they will be able to see, oh, you know, there's obviously an issue here where they're not able to participate. And so they will see them, like they can't ignore the things that are right there in front of their face. So a lot of times we're leaving the kids home We don't get, they don't get to see you crying, you know, at the IEP meeting. I think it's good for them to see them, you know, at appropriate age. It's good for them to see that at least seven, you know, and 10 and on up. I wouldn't recommend, you know, like a five and four year old see mommy cry and, you know, have to go get her adult beverages when she gets home. But I still think that there are age appropriate things that we can do. And even the second thing you can do is, you know, work on your child giving a speech, You know, have them use the very language and the words that they know how to use and own it. You know, I have a disability. It's hard for me. Sometimes I see my mommy cry because she's fighting so hard for me. You know, that's a little bit of coaching, but that's still very real. And if the child has, you know, speech difficulties or any other kind of thing, you don't want to exploit them, but you want to make sure they're comfortable, say, you know what, I'm teaching you how to speak up. This is going to save your life. And this is going to create change for you and so many other people. So, you know, taking them with you, letting them speak at an, at an age that's appropriate, and then talking about it, you know, talking about disability, like, you know, I know you have a disability. How do you feel about that? You know, what are you experiencing? What do you feel when you go to school? You couldn't participate in something? Well, I'm sorry. How did that make you feel? How can we try to get you to participate next time? So those things are just so important. You know, so many of us, we just, we take care of the child until they're 18 and they haven't seen us do anything because we did it away from them. They weren't a participant in those things. And even myself, I didn't know how to participate in my IEPs, but I could have had coaching and I had enough articulation to speak, but nobody ever asked me. And so I think that that is really important. I will speak up for myself, but I needed to have the conversation at home. I needed to have some prep, but I was able to see my parents in different stages speaking up for me.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, I am. I'm definitely guilty of not doing things in front of my son. You know, his, the last couple of years he was in school, they, they were very, they were a lot more proactive about having him lead his IEP. He did give a speech like he spoke when he graduated from you know, or left school at twenty one, whatever you want to call it. When he when he finished school, he gave a speech at his at his commencement at his graduation. That was really cool. You no, know, it was really awesome. And then, but I, I like the idea of talking to your children about the fact that they have a disability, mm-hmm. and my bias comes in don't frame it as you have a superpower or it's you're special or (laughs)
1: yeah
0: i mean you know we all have deficits right i mean Mm -hmm. every single one of us and we don't highlight it i don't highlight the fact that i i wear hearing there are times i'll be like i'm sorry you're gonna have to speak up i wear hearing aids but i don't go Mm -hmm. into it saying i wear hearing aids you have to you know whatever to accommodate me Mm -hmm. why would we do the same thing for our children why would we say my child has down syndrome or, you know, my child has cerebral palsy. You need to Mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. We don't, why lead with the diagnosis? Right. But I think to your point, I feel like we are doing our children a disservice by not making sure that they know they have a disability, because how can you advocate for yourself or ask for Mm supports if you, if you don't know you have a disability?
1: Right. Right. But also mine is even further than that is how did, how's your child going to process his or her anger? and resentment. If they don't have the, the words and the tools to talk about that openly, you know, when we, when kids are adopted, you know, they tell them right away, you know, you're adopted. And if at some point you want to go find, you know, your biological people, that's the way we should also do disability. Like this is, these are the issues and these are the things you're going to be up against because of those issues. And so, you know, it won't be such a devastating blow if i already know oh i'm in the workplace i'm disabled i'm probably going to get treated a little differently my mom already talked to me about here's the tools and things that i can do to advocate myself for myself focus on the things that i can do i worked for the federal government for a little while and i also worked as part of an, as an intern program for the department of justice and the fbi and i you know i would barter like i couldn't reach the copier sometimes but when people found out I could write the KSAs to get them the next grade and a bump up, like to like I could get a person who's an 11 and a 9 to a grade 12 and a 13, like I was popular because I used my <laughs> writing to help them. I was writing people's KSAs. I was helping them get lateral positions and, you know, their next grade level. And they were just like, oh, my God, you until this day, you know, my mom is like, you help so-and-so get that. And you know, he buys all my books. He's retired now, but I helped him get his next grade, you know, and helped him become a 13 before he got out of there. And, you know, I already knew my limitations. I knew I wasn't gonna make copies for you. I wasn't gonna get the coffee. You know, you didn't want it spilled all over the place as I bump along in my wheelchair. But hey, I could do your KSAs, I could write this report for you. So I was always bartering, even when I you know, new. And even people would tell me that, you know, when I first met you, you said, I can't do A, B, and C, but I could do this, this, and this for you instead. And that also often sealed my interview too, because I went ahead and addressed disability because I already knew it was in their mind. Yes, I actually worked for a daycare center in my twenties and I already knew the lady that I interviewed, you know, I was like, I know you're probably concerned about my wheelchair and how the children are going to interact. You know, and I was thinking in my head, like, what if you actually run over one of them? I didn't say that, but you know, I'm sure they were thinking that. And then when I left the, when I left the interview, I remember my mom was driving me at the time and I got in the car and I was like, I got the job. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, I got the job. And I also told them I need to work with the older kids. I don't want to work with any little toddlers. First of all, their nose is always running, which will give me a strep throat, and I can't handle that. But, and you're sick anyway when you work at a daycare center all the time. But I already addressed it. I already put their minds at ease, and I already let them know, I've thought about this before I got here, so I can allay your fears, and especially their bottom line and their liability. That is all they're thinking about. They don't care if I could do the job or not. All they want to know is, what is this going to cost me, and are you going to cost me anything? So if I can go in there knowing what's up, then I can put myself in a much better position to help them. So I got the job because I feel like I was open and transparent and always breached the subject before they had to, because they they feel uncomfortable. They don't want to, they're actually not supposed to ask you about disability yeah. in, in job interviews and such. If you've applied, you assume that you can do the job. And so, and they should too, despite their, you know, they're going to think that you can't. But it's up to you to tell them and to paint a good light. And so I've been getting jobs, you know, forever throughout. And I've had a number of
0: different opportunities. I love that, Tracy, because what I didn't hear you say was you, I didn't hear anything about you focusing on what you couldn't do and what your deficits were and stopping there. You know, and and I feel like, although well-meaning, oftentimes job coaches or these organizations that are trying to get people with disabilities placed that's what they lead with. They lead with, well, so-and-so needs to work reduced hours or right. so-and-so can't stand for prolonged periods. And you haven't even discovered if the job requires you to stand for six hours at a time. Right. You, maybe the job only requires 30-minute increments of you know, maybe once in a while you have to do six hours, but now you've, you've already painted this negative picture. And yes. I mean, speaking as an employer, I'm like, well, geez, what can you do? Mm -hmm. You know, I I mean, it becomes this unconscious, well, maybe not so unconscious bias now against you.
1: Right. And you set a tone, you set a tone, a very dismal tone that brings people down. Like if you have a conversation with me and I bring you down, you're not going to want to have another conversation. We're not going to be going into a into a long term relationship if our initial conversations are about, you know, how I can't do A, B and C. So we do need to reframe the discussion and focus on what I can do so that you, I can bring you along you know, on a journey and that we can have a long-term relationship. But the dismal talk, the woe is me thing, the what I can't do is a surefire way to you know, not get called back, not be brought back, and not be hired.
0: Coming across as if you have an, a, a sense of entitlement. You know, nobody wants to have somebody who feels entitled working for them. And
1: nobody wants what I call ADA thumpers. (laughs) You know, there used to be Bible thumpers. (laughs) So like, I just, I, there are some people I'm just like, wow, you're ADA thumper. Like, could you just stop? You know, they just kind of lead with, well, the ADA says, I, you know, have this and I have that, right. And I'm just like, nobody wants to hear that. Just, you know, just plus, plus, first of all, what do they think about the ADA? Think about, you know, Sue Happy. You know, just a place people are using, uh, it already has a negative connotation. I'm not bringing that up because you're going to get scared and you're going to think that I'm going to sue you or, you know, holler discrimination because, you know, you want, you didn't hire me or I didn't get the, the accommodations or whatever that I feel are, are, like you said, entitled to me. So I just leave it off the table altogether. You know, of course I've used it when I get really angry or get mad or something really is. And I've tried the other routes first, you know, then, well, let me call the ADA thumpers, you know, on you. But, you know, that is rarely a thing that, but I know people, I know people who do that. Like it's almost their living is to go around doing that and makes it so much harder for the rest of us.
0: Right. Along the ADA thing, I I think there's this misperception or unconscious fear from employers that a reasonable accommodation is going to be super expensive. Like they're going to have to redo their entire everything. Right. You use a wheelchair, so I've never used one. I'm six feet tall, but I imagine counters have to be a little different for you, right? How often does that need to be a complete redesign? I mean, so when you got the job at CLI, how much did they have to change the physical work environment?
1: They didn't have to change it at all. I mean, honestly, it was already, well, for a sill it's different. For okay. a Center for Independent Living, it's different there. You know, it's federally mandated that the staff, at least half, I think it's 51%, have disabilities. Okay. So you're kind of a shoe in there. But there were other things where, you know, most of the desks are already built with adjustments because of people's varying height. You know, maybe you need a, a footrest or something to put your feet on if you're short Maybe you need the desk to be a little bit higher and to elevate your chair. Maybe you have back problems and you need an ergonomic chair, which costs a little bit of money. But what we need to stop doing is you know, employers and those in a position to hire need to stop looking at the funding pot and the funding sources as their own money. And I think that that is a huge barrier. When you think about requesting an accommodation, there are a pot of funds often for that. I realize it's not in every sector, but most sectors have funds for accommodation requests. Okay? And those are some of those are federal funds and if you don't have federal funds, you often get tax incentives for coming to for coming into compliance and, you know, making it easy to adhere to the request of your employees. And a lot of the things that we need are things other people need, too. Yes. You know, we're not really all that special because you guys love the things that are there for us. You know, delivery people love the ramps. You know, how come I can't get into the handicapped stall because everybody's in there who's not who doesn't have a disability because they want the extra room?
0: I've been guilty of going in using those to change clothes. I I own it. I own it. It's
1: fine. I don't really mind that. It's just that you should at least be aware, you know, but you should be aware that this exists, not because you have extra rump, you know, but this exists because you, you want to be comfortable. This exists because I need it. You know, I need it desperately. You don't.
0: I I mean, to that point, Tracy, I think just about, how much better the sidewalks are now that they have the ramps yes. that, that going more and more have the ramps. They even have the, the raised bumps for the people that are visually impaired. I think back to when my son was younger and I would take him around in a wagon and how much it sucked getting, I would have to find a driveway, yes. right? I would have to find a driveway right. to get up onto the, but yeah, to your point, I mean, that speaks to your point though, right? That yes, mm-hmm. it's designed for somebody who uses a wheelchair or maybe you, a walker or something and has trouble negotiating those bigger steps, but everybody uses them everybody. But, and nobody thinks twice about it after it's installed. Right. Right. Um, now, what
1: I can't stand is you let your kid, you know, fist bump the automatic door button. And then when I get there, it's broken. Now that I can do without just press it lightly. I'm going to need it when I get there, but you let your kid come and hammer it like a punching bag and then it's broken. So, you know, even they, even people that are carrying heavy things, you know, they hit their, hit the button with their elbow because their hands are full.
0: Or nowadays, you know, know, with COVID, you know, how many people didn't want germs on the doors? You know, restrooms have always thought, you know, you just got done washing your hands. Do you really want to grab a bathroom door? Right. I mean, the lever,
1: the lever is for us so we can grip it, but you can use your elbow on it, your wrist. So you don't have to touch the handle, but that wouldn't exist you know, without us needing to be able to get out of buildings, you know, in the event of an emergency and just to get in and out on a regular basis.
0: Right. So, I mean, this is all highlights. These are accommodations, again, accommodations and air quotes mm-hmm. that an employer might have to make, but at the end of the day, it's going to really benefit everybody. Everybody. Um, and I've, I've been Pregnant meeting that for women. a while.
1: Yeah. People with children and strollers, people carrying things, Delivery people, like I said, and just everyone, everyone who needs who's carrying something or just doing regular activities, you know?
0: No, that's awesome. So you mentioned transportation, you mentioned advocacy. What were some, what were some of the other, chapters in your in your field guide that, you know, just to real quick to, to put a bow on this, you know, so we don't beat the accommodations and make employers think we hate them. <laughs> right,
1: right. No, I'm so glad to be gainfully employed. I don't hate employers. So some of the other topics I talk about are caregiving. I actually pushed the book's date back because I wasn't ready But also I wanted to write at least a couple pages about how the pandemic has really obliterated the caregiver industry and how it's so hard to find good quality people and to talk about, you know, how much they are a part of the infrastructure where people don't think they are. But if I have someone coming into my home, helping me go to work and by them taking care of me and assisting me, I'm also supplying a job for them and that helps their family. Am I going to work helps my family? You know, how can that not be a part of our overall economy? You know, and so I really wanted to address that in the chapter. And, you know, just that people should also get caregivers. There's a lot of people I work with, especially young men who think their mom is going to take care of them forever. And it's just not going to happen. Mom's going to get sick. You know, mom and dad are going to die and pass away. And you need to have these supports in place. For yourself. Some other chapters are, you know, physical health and mental health, trying to get mental health supports when there's so much. There's just being a woman, being, you know, Black and racial injustice, and then carrying the weight of disability that it sometimes brings in the intersection of all that and how that impacts, you know, my life and my mental health. Physical health. I talk about how I just wish I'd never stopped swimming and how important physical, you know, activity is even as my muscles get weaker, it's a little bit scary swimming now and not being able to move as well as I used to, but that I really should have never given up on that. And that parents need to push their children in order to make sure that they, you know, keep, I would be so much better for it. And, you know, even doctors, you know, this sounds conceited, but some doctor complimented on my lungs. And that's because I swam until I was like 12, 13. And then I stopped uh, for several years and I tried to go back and it was just so much harder. So those are just some of the, and the last uh, one of the other chapters is uh, emergency preparedness. And I'm hoping, you know, even though the chapters that I write are, in com- are conversational and even encouraging a couple of reviews that I've had, they're encouraging, they're heartfelt. I still want to sound the alarm. However, I can, about how we're not ready for the complication of disability and an emergency to both hit us at the same time. So, what if your primary caregiver dies? And also around money in the emergency preparedness chapter, I'm talking about, you know, I need to save up money in order to hire a caregiving agency in the event my caregiver is sick and my mom is sick. So now I have a fund. Or I'm just like, this is caregiver agency money. So if I can't, if I can't make it work with the person that I hired and trained on my own, they take ill, they have a family emergency of their own, and something happens to my backup caregiver, which is a relative and family member, you know, what am I going to do? And so Damn. how we just don't have the money. I also talk about Katrina and some of the natural disasters and how people with disabilities were. Even it was compounded the impact that those had because of the disability and the prevalence of it.
0: I, I can only imagine. You know, I think about when I was a financial advisor how hard it was to get people to have an emergency fund in case the furnace broke or you know whatever. You know what is it? The study says most people don't have five hundred dollars for that's, an emergency that's or right. something. That's scared me to death. Yeah, and and now you take into account something even more, you know. Just yeah, I I I hadn't thought of a, again because I don't like I know with my son we have staff that paid for by by the Medicaid waiver, but he's at a place where where if if need be we can we can go without staff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I can just right now I can step in. But to your point, what happens if I'm not here? If I can't, That's right. yes. And then that circles back to the caregiving side of it, because, you know, the care, the lack of caregivers f- ties really into the emergency preparedness. And mm-hmm. that's because we're not, my personal opinion, professional opinion, we're not treating direct support professionals like a profession. Right. We're treating them like they're entry level workers. And I, I mm-hmm. don't feel that's fair. I, I feel this should be a, a true profession, perhaps maybe even come up with some kind of certification or designation if it means you'll be able to pay them more but it's certainly not entry level you know asking somebody to really be another person's legs and arms and just you know an extension of the individual
1: right and and people don't think about it it's like if I don't have a caregiver well I can't really work right. you know and so then I become a pull also on the system right. you know I apply for disability. And, you know, I'm pulling these resources when if I just had a caregiver, I would be able to make my nine to five, my 40 hours a week and earn, you know, what I need. And then Social Security and disability is just not enough to live on anyway. Yeah. You know, so even if I do pull in the system, it's still not enough yeah. for me to have a good quality of life. I still need some other kind of supplemental income to order in order to even make that work.
0: Right. Um, and then you, so, you have to be careful because if you're working and you're getting social security, there's rules for right. that too.
1: Yes. And I really think they should treat people with disabilities like veterans. Veterans can go on full disability and still make so much money in private and in, in federal sectors. And I just think that that's unfair. So you penalize the people that are trying to do both. I understand you need to have some limits but at least make, let them make up to you know fifteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars, you know, not cap it at $1,000 dollars. You know And yeah. every little bit they have to prove so much about the expenses they have related to disability, about you know how much the income fluctuates and make these reports on a monthly basis about your earnings. It's just so exhausting to really measure all of that when, like, this is not a lot of money here. Right. It's not like I'm getting, you know, $10,000 a month. Yeah. I mean, that's just like so SSI
0: standard. has been re- reframed in a long time. And SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, it's, you know, the, I think the substantial gainful activity is $1,300 a month. And when you look at what it costs to live in most areas of the United States, $1,300 a month is not, mm-hmm. it's not going to do it. So yeah. I would like to see, I would like to see it meet. The actual living you know what it costs to live somewhere really live yes. somewhere not not the federal poverty level because mm-hmm. you know if you're on if you're at or below fpl federal poverty level you're not living no
1: you're barely you know, getting by
0: yeah i mean so no I, i'm 100 with you maybe what we need to do is change the term from caregiving because that that there, there's this I feel like this bias that, oh, if you're a caregiver, you have to be a family member or mm-hmm. caregivers are, you know, I, I don't know. It just feels like there's this bias towards that. Maybe we can come up with some different terms. You know, we call them right. job coaches. Maybe we can come up with, you know, independent living consultant or something. I don't, right. I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm but I'm serious about that. Mm-hmm. Now they're using direct support
1: professionals too, but I'm not sure that's any better, but there is a little bit more respect, I think for a direct support professional, because they almost seem to be giving you, you know, support to really be a contributing member of society where let's just face it, you know, caregiving implies that you're emptying bedpans for people who aren't, don't have a real life. Right. You know, I have to explain to so many caregivers when I interview and hire them that I'm not elderly, you know, I'm in my mid forties, I'm still working, you know, you are here to kind of help me get where I need to be eat my breakfast, get dressed, do all the things, the daily living activities that I need to do so I can report to work. You know, it's not that I'm going to be sitting around watching y all day and I don't need a friend or a companion to join me. You know, I need someone a couple hours in the morning and then a couple hours in the evening. And so I think that that can also be how they feel about the job is also of something worth discussing right. is that if they don't feel pride and respect about their helping me. And I try to frame that. I say, you are the key to my doing what I need to do and supporting my family. And I really want you to take pride in this job because I'm able to do so much. But if you are, you know, just kind of companion care, then I can see how that paints a dismal picture. You're just there to supervise somebody. But there are a lot of us that have caregivers that are still very active adults. And so, and that's hard too, being lumped in, with the elderly set. Like, what do you want to do today? You know, one of my character, one of my caregivers characters, (laughs) one of my caregivers, you know, I got so mad. I almost fired her one time (laughs) because she's no longer with me. Uh, Anyway, she moved on, but you know, I asked her to get me some eggs or something out of the, out of the fridge, because I do need things put on the table for me so I can make them. I can make them. I just can't reach the fridge. And she looked at me and I said, put some, I said, put two eggs in a bowl on the table for me, butter and jelly and whatever else I wanted. And she said, "What you going to do? I was like, I was like, I'm having an out of body experience. I think I'm going to like jump out from my wheelchair and beat you up. (laughs) You know, I just like, like, how dare you? Like, you know, if I ask you to do something, you know, it's not for you to judge. What am I going to do with it? What do you do with eggs? Scramble, fry them. Bake them, I didn't mean, <laughs> poach them. Like it was just so ridiculous to me. But that also reminded me of just what we're up against, as far as you know, dignity, respect, good quality of life, believing in our abilities. You know, I can make a lot of different things for, you know, I love to cook. It's just hard reaching everything, but I know what I'm doing once I get there. And so just so just the, the perspective of the caregivers, also is problematic on their view of our life and what we're doing with ourselves and, you know, their own, their own job view and outlook. And the other thing I'll say on the other side for them is that we don't give them health care. Like yeah. that is ridiculous. They get a job, you know, they are doing a lot of work and then we don't have any health care system for them they're like contract workers,
0: you know? And they'll often be working three or four for three or four different agencies because they can't make enough. And the salary is capped by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Medicaid decides how much, you know, they can get paid. And that, you know, that bothers me because again, what are they using for frameworks? Right. You know, the, there there should be no reason for somebody to have to work two or three different agencies to, to do this. And it's, and then, what are agencies teaching your staff if you know if that if that individual has that kind of mentality? I mean, where where do you even get that? How how do you have that mentality? And you're, and you're in this profession. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. whiskey tango foxtrot. I mean,
1: <laughs> it's true. It's backwards. I mean, you're providing care and then you don't care for them.
0: Right. You know? Or and if, if you're burned you're out, saying. if you're burned out, you're burned out. I mean, mm-hmm. you will leave. But but then it comes to what other marketable skills have you built, and, and mm-hmm. how do you frame those skills, and what's the, how do you advance in the in the direct support professional profession? How do you, you know, you know in the agencies, you know they're limited to how much they can pay because a lot a lot of them are funded by either you know, nonprofits typically, mm-hmm. so they're either funded by donations and or government you know government money, and this, the country seems to have this thing that nonprofits can't make money. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and if the nonprofit's paying money for staff, then they're doing something wrong because it's not going all the programming. And, yeah, I'm not going to go down that road, but it's it just <laughs> it's incredibly aggravating. Yes. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling, you know, it's, it's it's it just perpetuates its own brokenness.
1: Right. 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 And a lot of even the profit uh, agencies, they're making all the money. Yep. While they really skimp out on the wages to the worker, and I hire directly, so I place ads. You know, I sign up for Care.com, and the other thing that people don't realize is that costs so much money. Yes, you know, almost two hundred dollars for a year subscription in order to get funneled these caregivers, and then you know the majority of them are not going to be the right fit. But I've had to pay. You have to pay the place to place an ad you have to, you know, pay for almost everything. I put flyers in libraries and different things like that. I have a whole list of things that people can do um, in order to find a caregiver, but those, you have to do all of them. You know, one ad in care.com, is not going to do it. One ad in the paper, I used to love placing the ad in the paper because I felt like at least I weeded out the people who can't read, you know, at least I had it do some of the work for me and really, you know, try to get some of these upper level people who may be more dedicated and maybe more mature if they're still reading the paper. But even that now is obsolete. You know, that's not the way Craigslist, you know, Mm -hmm. I, for a long time, I resisted Craigslist because I watched Lifetime and saw the Craigslist killer, you know? And so it's like, what am I going to do? You know, so. And um, and
0: now how many people want to work virtually for everything? And it's kind of hard to help you virtually. Totally, totally. But I was
1: thankful for virtually because I used to meet people at coffee shops at the library because I never invited strangers to my home until I get to see, you know, are you a serial killer or what's happening here? But I was thankful for the virtual and the Zoom because I could then also vet the caregivers on that way as you know a temporary measure to at least see them. They could see me you know, and kind of gauge what abilities they have and who they are and have a real conversation. So that has been one good, small good thing uh, to come from that.
0: You've given us a lot to think about, Tracy. Thank you. I'm going to include a link to the book and in the show notes, I'm going to include a link to your website because your website has so much more the books you've written. You can get, you will include links there, but you also have so many resources for, for aspiring writers and you have courses that you give and and you're, you know, there's just so much more that you're, we couldn't even touch on because this would be like a a three hour episode. (laughs) So listeners, I really encourage you to check out Tracy's website and see everything she has to offer Tracy, was there anything I should have asked that I didn't or anything that you want to make sure we really touch on before we get going? The only
1: final thought I would say is that, you know, this book is not just for people with disabilities because we are the choir and I already know that I'm preaching to the choir. We are able to adapt. We are resilient. But I would encourage others that know of people with disabilities and let's say you're a grandparent or, you know, a doctor or a caregiver or a nurse to also read the book, because a lot of times parents in the day-to-day activities don't have the time to sit down and really immerse themselves in something. So if you want to help someone that, you know, a family member or a distant cousin or whatever relation they are to you, even just as a friend, read the book and, you know, get the resources and then come alongside and help them. You know, you don't have to, Hammer them over the head. You can just be like, I read this book by this wonderful young lady named Tracy Garner. And these are some of the things that she talked about in this area that you need. So, you know, it's very topical, it's, you know, delineated and divided into those nine topics. And I want others to get it so they can help other families.
0: Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Tracy. I'll definitely make sure I include a link. And, and thank you for, for giving the gift of your time. This has been, I really enjoy talking to you. I have a lot of fun. And I I, I think you hit on some really big points for people to think about today. And, and I, I hope they sit with it for a little while, you know, and, and really think about it.
1: Well, I want to thank you too, Eric, for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the ABC of Disability Planning Podcast and my interview with Tracy Gardner. I would love to hear your feedback and your co- make comments and hit like or share or both in the app player of your choice. I do encourage you to reach out, connect with Tracy, explore her website, get the book. I admit I hadn't read the book yet because when I first learned about Tracy, the only thing available was an ebook and I really struggle reading on a Kindle. So I'm going to be placing an order for the paperback myself. I think there's a lot to to be taken away from this, and I'm probably going to be gifting it to some of my friends and professional contacts, because I do feel, as Tracy called out towards the end of the episode, that she's preaching to the choirs. The people with the disabilities and their allies may not need to read this book as much as the people who don't have much exposure or much experience with people with disabilities. So I encourage you to get the book. I encourage you to please give me your feedback And I would ask for your support with the podcast. I do want to start offering transcriptions which would be complete written records of what the podcast is about, the conversation transcribed into written format so if somebody is hearing impaired they can use it. And I'd also like to start getting these translated into different languages. Both of those take time and more importantly financial resources that I, I currently don't have and that's where the support of the podcast would be coming for, would be going towards if you go to my anchor website linked in the show notes that's where you would be able to support and i i truly appreciate anything you can you can do to help me out here and help your fellow listeners out thank you